Welcome to Puzzling It Out, Thoughts and Perspectives from a Clinical Psychologist. Hello, my name is Dr. Gail Lewis, your podcast host and a clinical psychologist practicing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. This is my eighth episode of my podcast, and the title of today's podcast is Coats of Armor, Defending Defenses. And my impetus for wanting to talk about this topic actually arose recently um, in my practice when I noticed probably something I've noticed before, but it it just um, occurred to me, I guess more saliently, that several of the people with whom I work sit throughout the entire session either with their coat on or with their coat on their lap. Now, when you walk into the waiting room of my office, there is a coat closet immediately to the right, and I make sure to point that out uh, at the first appointment that we have, and often will offer patients, do you, would you like to hang up your coat? often ask patients during session, do you want to take off your coat? And the people to whom I'm referring do not want to hang up their coat, do not want to take off their coat. They want to keep their coat either on their entire person or on their lap. And this I find very interesting. Um, I realized to a lay person, what's, what's the big deal? Um, and then I asked myself, okay, is my office too cold? Um, I have the option of putting heat on if it's too cold. I, I do make that offer. I have the option of turning the air conditioning on if it's too warm. Regardless, this the situation of the coat on person, on lap, continues. And it, it made me think about defenses and protection um, and metaphorically what might wearing a coat or a jacket during an entire 45-minute session might be communicating since as those of us in the business know, there's so much that gets communicated beyond what is actually being worded by a patient. Their body language, the way they're saying something, whether or not they're making eye contact, the way they might be shifting, etc. So I can't say that the people to whom I'm referring, I've, I've ever asked, how come you wear your coat? throughout the session or how come your coat is laying on your lap and I, I acknowledge that I've been remiss in that. My excuse, if I need one, is that I don't think it registered to me as fully as it has in the past week um, before then and that's something that I need to give some thought to. Defenses. I once, when I was in graduate school, um, I was taking a class, and it was my first year of graduate school, 
and for some reason we were put in a class with the seniors in the graduate school program and the course or the class that particular day was on defenses and Anna Freud's um, collection of defenses that she came up with and we were discussing them and while I wasn't an especially outspoken brave or assertive person at that point in my life I did raise my hand and I asked my teacher in front of everybody is sarcasm a defense and yes everybody started laughing um, not with me at me um, and my teacher kind as he was, Dr. Frank Padalano, um, he responded in a very um, respectful way and said that no, that was not one of Anna Freud's defenses, but uh, at the same time, sarcasm is often used defensively. It's used as a way to deflect anxiety, to deflect anger, uh, to communicate nervousness, basically to deflect being direct. So while I was embarrassed at the response that I got from all of my classmates, I am glad that I asked the question because it certainly has made me think over the years about all the sarcasm that exists in my life, either coming from me or in my direction, or sarcasm that I notice in other people, not necessarily directed to me. So what, what do our defenses do? Um, you know, when I say sarcasm defends us against, it's another way of saying it, it protects us from. And if you, if you believe in an unconscious, which I do, um, and if you believe in any of Anna Freud's theories, which I do to an extent, we have an unconscious that is comprised of many different facets. One large part of that are our defenses. And some might sound familiar to you, such as denial, rationalization, um, intellectualization that might not be as familiar, um, undoing, uh, let me think of some others, projection. And I can explain all of these and explain how they might be used. Another one is dissociation. That's a big one. And we all do that. And what dissociation is, is it's an unconscious function. Uh, sometimes I wish it could be more consciously um, activated, but it is an unconscious function in which we are in a situation that is overwhelming to us or that we are in the process of talking about something that triggers something overwhelming to us, that we are not ready to deal with in a truly conscious, direct, grounded, real way. And what dissociation does 
is it kind of cuts off from consciousness that piece of information or those pieces of information that we can't deal with in the moment. This most often is discussed when we talk about trauma and when someone has been traumatized and if you've ever talked to somebody who's been traumatized and they don't, for example, recall exactly what happened um, and they can't really talk about it in any kind of linear or uh, clear way, that's dissociation at work. Um, I have a really good example. It's a personal example. I'll share that with you. This was about, I don't know, seven years ago. I was on vacation and the first morning of my vacation, we landed on a Thursday. The next morning I got up, I went for a run on the beach. And I was about a mile out from the hotel and I had my, um, I guess I was listening to my iPod and I had my earphones in and not too loud. I was listening to the waves, just focusing on my run. And out of nowhere, a pack of dogs, I think probably six dogs, five or six dogs, came running out of uh, nowhere, like part, like the land part of where I was on the beach, and jumped on me and knocked me down and started biting me and scratching me. And then they got up and left and ran away. Now, there's a whole lot more to the story than that. But when I was asked, uh, probably not even um, an hour later, uh, what happened, I, I describe the experience, I am sure, in a way that it actually did not occur. I was in Puerto Rico. Um, I was running past a part of an area that I could tell was impoverished. And I'm sure these dogs were not purebred dogs, but in my head, they were all the same breed. They were all the same color. They were all the same size. And it seems in that particular situation, logically, that that not, would not have been the case. But because we, as human beings, need to incorporate information in logical ways to make sense out of it, even if the actual situation is not logical, which is usually the case when trauma happens, we internalize it in a way that we can verbalize it rationally and logically, which is often pretty much off the mark of what really happened. Now, I never saw those dogs again to verify or negate my memory of them, but as a psychologist who specializes in trauma and has a lot of experience working with trauma, I know and I knew at that time that my memory 
was affected by the dissociative defense that was activated because I was traumatized by that. So it's an example of how a particular defense mechanism just kind of leaps in to keep us steady, to keep us grounded, um, to keep us moving forward. And you know, very often people get frustrated if they're asking somebody about something that happened to them that to that person was overwhelming or in the category of trauma and they say they can't remember and the person asking if it's not necessarily a clinician if it's a lay person might not understand might feel frustrated how can you possibly not remember something like that um, if they have some bits of information about what they know happened how can you not remember something like that and we remember what we can. Our unconscious allows us to deal with consciously what we can deal with. And it keeps unconscious to us those things that it knows, and I have air quotes going on, it, that the unconscious knows we can't deal with. I have people that I work with who come into session and seem to be in a rush to get through whatever it is that they're coming to therapy for. They want it to move quickly. They want to figure out how to work through something that's happened years ago that they realize through our work continues to affect them to this day. And they want to be able to find a very quick way to address it, to deal with it, and to put it behind them. And I don't have an answer for someone asking me that question. I, I really, I, I don't know how to quicken something like that. Uh, I'm sure that there are other therapists who work differently than I do who might have other solutions. But to me, the haste with which they want to work through this is driven by anxiety and frustration and feeling lost and feeling helpless and feeling many other things and feeling out of control, for example. And I try to explain to them that this isn't something that can be rushed, that once your internal world, i.e. your unconscious, has a sense that you consciously are grounded enough to deal more thoroughly with those experiences and those memories and those feelings around those experiences, all of that will become conscious to you. It's very similar to when we have a dream and we can't remember it. Uh, and most people will say, oh, I don't dream. <laughs> Everybody dreams. Everybody dreams. And you know, there are people, yes, who are better at remembering their dreams than, than others. But very often, we don't remember our dreams because the content of it or the affect and feelings that come up as a result of 
being in the experience of the dream are not tolerable for us to be able to consciously process. And therefore, we can't remember it. There's another reason. I mean, there are several reasons, but there is another reason why we often can't remember it. Because we as human beings like things linear, like things very goal-oriented and goal-directed. And we like to be able to start a sentence in one place and end in a way where the entire sentence has made sense. But when it comes to recalling a dream, that can be really challenging because dreams tend to be fragmented. They tend to include um, objects and people and experiences that are nonsensical to us in our logical, rational way of thinking about things. And therefore, that makes it harder to remember. It's harder to remember things that are not are alinear and are broken up and don't seem to fit together very well. Also, um, in that kind of situation, people might feel ashamed or embarrassed to be able to speak about a dream that to them makes absolutely no sense and is illogical and is erratic and to admit it to somebody, even if it's a therapist they trust, to admit it out loud, to hear them say it, they might feel kind of crazy. And often people do feel kind of crazy when they talk about their dreams because they're not very clear and they have no understanding as to what's going on. And it can make someone feel rather out of control. So in my understanding, when you are able to remember those things, even if they make no sense, it does tell me that your unconscious is allowing you to be conscious of something, that whether or not it makes sense, as you recall it, it's giving you permission to talk about it. Your unconscious is giving you permission to talk about it with a hope, I don't know that an unconscious has hope, but this is my interpretation, with the hope that if you talk about it, it will become more conscious, it will become more clear, and the interpretive value of being able to collaborate with a therapist to try to understand what the different symbols and people and experiences of the dream are about, it will get to a point where it actually will make sense, and it will bring something forward to your awareness that before you were not aware of. So back to the coats. Not literally. I guess back to the coats of armor that we all have. Um, I think that most people have a tendency a proclivity towards being guarded in different interpersonal situations for a variety of reasons, whether it was from some historical event or repetitive historical events that got internalized that are being replicated later on in life and that sets off those those past memories 
um, or an anticipation of having those kinds of experiences, we become guarded. And sometimes that is a conscious decision to put up our defenses, a conscious decision to put on that, that coat of armor. And, and other times our guard goes up without our intent. It just does because of a situation that we're in. Um, and to me, that's communication that something isn't feeling safe. We don't need our defenses if we feel safe. We don't need our defenses if we feel grounded. Uh, we don't need our defenses if we feel like we are in charge and capable and we have the capacity to deal with the situation that we find in front of us. And when we're finding that our defenses or our coats of armor are present, and it, it might be upon reflecting back that we realize that that was the case, not necessarily in the moment, it's good information to think about, well, what was it about that situation that my defenses were up? Um, and some people feel really badly about themselves that their defenses are working um, because they want to be in a situation and feel free and feel open and and not feel guarded and feel that they can do anything. And yes, that sounds pretty good, but only if the situation is safe and only if you have the capacity and the building blocks internally and, and external that make you feel like you can handle it. So when someone's sitting in my office with a coat on or with a jacket on their lap or holding something in their hands for the entire duration of a session, even I have pillows on my couch, even grasping a pillow, not in a comforting way, <laughs> uh, for the entire session, it makes me think something is feeling awry for them. Something is not feeling safe. Something is going on for them where they need to have some protection between themselves and possibly me. Now, I don't know if, if these individuals wear coats on their person or on their lap everywhere they go. I only have the context of my office from which to draw some of these conclusions or make some of these assumptions. But I do believe that it must have something to do with me since I'm the only other person in the office with them. That something is not feeling that they can just sit there coat free, their body just sitting on the couch without anything covering it in a way that feels safe to them. And I, I, want, I want those of you who are listening to this to, to think about the ways in which your armor goes up um, and to be curious about it, to be curious about those times that maybe after you're in a situation and you have all these questions, God, why did it happen that way? Or um, 
for women out there who are dating. Like, well, what happened? I thought the date went really well, and why didn't he call me? And I, I'm not suggesting to reflect on it and think, okay, well, you're to blame for that, and this is what was going on, and you shouldn't have done that. That's not my point here. My point is you were participating in whatever happened on that date. And it might be good information for you to know that, oh, you know what? I wasn't feeling so safe or I wasn't feeling so comfortable. Um, and I wonder if that has something to do with why the date went as it did. And maybe it's a good thing I didn't hear from this person because of the way that I comported myself unconsciously was getting communicated. Um, now, the guy can also be an asshole, and that's why you were so defended, or why the guy didn't call, or why you weren't feeling safe. But I'm hoping that this is an opportunity for you to feel curious about the way your defenses kick in. Um, mostly unconsciously, which re require you to be more reflective than to be aware of it as it's going on, because most of us are not aware of it as it's going on. It requires looking back and thinking back and you know, wondering and trying not to be judgmental about it. We all have defenses. We all need our defenses in order to make situations better for us, more tolerable for us, and safer for us. And, and that certainly might mean that other parts of ourselves are cut off as a result of being in that defended state, and that might be what's necessary, and that's okay. Um, this is, again, not about being judgmental, not about being critical not about putting yourself down for not being aware um, at the time that something happened, but to try to encourage, as I try to do in all of these podcast episodes, try to encourage your interest and your curiosity in yourself and in the way that you operate and in the way that you find yourself in certain situations where maybe your defenses aren't so active and you're more free and you're more open and wondering, well, why is that? Like, how come in this situation I feel more comfortable, I feel more grounded, or I did feel more comfortable and more grounded and I didn't need, I didn't notice that my defenses were on alert. And in other situations, she wonder, well, huh, well, what was it about that situation that wasn't so obvious to me where I was highly defensive, I was highly guarded, I was checked out, um, I wasn't fully present to that, or I was in total denial. I I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, give you one more personal story that... I, I think as a human being, as a daughter, and as a psychologist, was very powerful for me. Um, my mother passed away over 25 years ago. And uh, 
towards the end of her life, um, I was told that her cancer had progressed um, pretty significantly. And my father told me that. He had spoken to the doctors, and the doctors told him that the cancer had progressed and that my mother knew that this had gone on. So um, after talking to my dad, I decided I wanted to talk to my mom about it. And I wanted to, I just wanted to talk to her about it and see how she was doing with this new information. So I remember I went to the hospital and I visited with her and I told her what my father had told me about how her cancer had progressed and where it had progressed to. And I probably said it in a soft-spoken voice. I tend to have a soft-spoken voice. And my mother looked at me and she said, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. And so I repeated it, thinking maybe she just didn't hear me correctly. Um, you know, I said, Daddy told me that your cancer is now here, here, and here. And I, I wanted to see how you were. And she became adamant that this was not true, that I was lying, that she didn't believe me, that the doctor never told her that, that her cancer had not progressed in any kind of way, and that she was just fine. Um, at which point I called my father and I started yelling at him on the phone and I called him a liar and I was so angry at him for having told this false information to me. How could he possibly do this? Why would he do this? Why would he hurt me this way? Why would he hurt my mother this way? It's not true. And my father said to me, um, in whatever way he needed to, that in fact it was true. And, you know, after a few minutes, I'm sure I believed him. I didn't feel the need to call the doctor to confirm what he was saying. And I got off the phone, and I remember having this, this kind of split, simultaneous experience. One as a clinical psychologist, and one as my mother's daughter and as my mother's daughter I was feeling really upset really sad really scared really confused angry I felt really helpless and I felt like I I just didn't know what to do because I knew that she was getting worse. I don't think I allowed myself to know she was going to die, but I knew that this was really bad. And I really wanted to talk to her about it. Um, and she wouldn't let me. And I was overwhelmed. But then the other part of me, the clinical psychologist part of me, was thinking, wow, this is the most unbelievable experience of denial in the service of the ego. And what I mean by that is 
No, defenses can be used in the service of the ego, and what that means is in the service of being able to function. Um, we all do that. You know, we all engage our defenses at times, not in any kind of severe way, but in ways that just allow us to be able to do what we need to do. For example, the dissociation that I talked about earlier that we all do that is much more predominant when you're dealing with a trauma, we all dissociate all the time. And what I mean by that is that if we, we cannot possibly take in every bit of stimuli that is thrown to us at every, every moment in our daily existence. Because if we were aware and conscious of every bit of stimuli in that kind of way, we would be immobilized all the time. So the dissociative function just kind of moves out of our consciousness all those bits of pieces of information that really are not necessary for us to be focusing on and just have us focus on the things that allow us to get on with our daily lives. So in, in this case, denial in the service of the ego, my mother's defense of denial of what was going on with her and her health and her declining health was just she could not manage that information and in order for her to be able to function um, and maybe in order for him to be able to function in that moment with me her daughter she needed to not know she needed to deny that this was going on with her body and it was an incredibly strange experience for me to have that simultaneous experience to be really um, fascinated by it. I was truly fascinated by it as a clinician and also incredibly overwhelmingly frightened and sad by it. But that's a really good example of how one's defenses can kick in when necessary. And again, they kick in when necessary. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of not working hard enough. It's not a sign of failing to do what you need to do to move through things quickly enough. They kick in as a way to safeguard us. Um, and when we're ready, we're ready. And your body and your mind will tell you so I suppose I started with the coats, the actual coats. I mean, I will discuss this with these people that I'm referring to. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the coats are gonna come off, but maybe there will be a day when these people will not need to have their coats on their person during a session. They may substitute it for something else, or they might not. Um, they might have found a way to not have the coat on them, near them, um, laying on their lap in order to feel like they can do the work they need to do in the space of my office. And that to me is a sign of unconscious processes working collaboratively with our conscious functioning in order to be able to deal with our lives and move forward. I'm going to stop there. 
As always, I thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to go to my website, which is drgaillewis.com. On the podcast page, there is a place for comments. My email address and my office phone number are also on my website. If you would like to speak further about this or anything else, Um, Additionally, there is also a page to schedule an appointment if you would like to discuss this or anything else um, in a consultation with me. So thank you again for listening, and I look forward to our next episode together. Bye-bye.